1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bell, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nick Pryor about his new book, Popular Music, Digital Technology and Society, which was published in 2018 by Sage Academic. In the book, he explores the social, cultural and industrial contexts for the changes that have taken place in popular music since the adoption of digital technology in that particular subfield of cultural production. From artists and producers to agents and publishers, from consumers and critics to concert goers and online fandoms, few constituencies remain untouched by the effects of digitalization. Pryor's approach, grounded in the sociology of culture, demonstrates an impressive fluency not only with the diverse technological milieu he describes, but also with the distinctive sounds of the contemporary popular music that they engender. Nick Pryor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Eamon. Nick, before we get down to discussing popular music, digital technology and society, I wonder um, if you could just begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book.
0: Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I'm a professor of cultural sociology um, in the sociology department at the University of Edinburgh, uh, where I've been since 1998. Um, my PhD and my, my early work wasn't actually on music at all, but uh, on National Art Museum, so um, my, my my PhD was on, was a sort of cultural history of national art museums in, in Europe and in England and in Scotland, heavily indebted to, to the work of Pierre Bourdieu, who um, was a sort of consistent strand in, in, in most of my work. But over the last 10 years or so, um, my research interests have pivoted much more towards music, uh, particularly popular music, uh, and even more particularly about the changes in, in popular music since uh, since the early 1980s. Um, I'm a part-time musician myself, so that gets into the work um, in the sense that I'm reflecting quite a lot on the changes that are inflected in my own work practices, uh, present in my own work practices. Um, and in, in a way, I'm using that as a sort of springboard to, to, to think about uh, changes since, since, since that period. Um I guess the other inspiration for the book comes from teaching, really. So the book is, is, is part of a, um, is a distillation of, of some of the teaching I've been doing in this area over the last few years. And students are a great source of inspiration, of course. And, 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 and indeed, um, the way that they talk about their own attachments to and um, their own experiences of music um, is, is a good source for, for, for writing in this area. And and I suppose the, third, the 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 other piece of inspiration or, or, or in terms of the origins of the book, it comes to, I guess from a sense of dissatisfaction with um what I was witnessing at that point to be a bit of a kind of obsession with the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties in terms of popular mm. music studies. Uh I felt like there that that you know, that um that, that sort of subdiscipline needed to be updated a little bit and um, you know, the 1980s became a, a good sort of point, uh, sort of jump-off point for me, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to update, you know, the the, the field, engage with some more contemporary material. Um, and you know, again, sort of tracking back to, to my to my experience as a musician myself, I was really, you know, at the beginning of you know the, the 1990s and and through the 2000s, I was really on the cusp of these big changes in, in in how music was being made, in terms of the compositional practices that were, that, were, that were changing, and also how how we were listening to music, and also how you know what the music sounded like, you know. And really, I wanted to, to take stock of that, and uh, and maybe intervene into some of the the debates that emerged from um, from 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 that taking stock exercise. Really, so yeah, that that's pretty much it in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, and I think that the evidence of interaction with students is quite clear in the book. So I think anyone who's interested in how um, teaching or how interactions or studying students um, can kind of feed into a research program, there's, there's a lot there. And it's also framed very nicely by, by something that we'll get to towards the end. Um, so in that there, you did mention the 1980s as a, a potential kind of at least starting point or, or moment of inflection for some of the uh, developments that you talk about in the book. Um, and, and if we turn to that, we're, we're starting to turn, I suppose, to the first chapter in the book, which is your introduction. Um, in the introduction of the book, you explain why a conjunction of technological developments in and around 1983 marks it as something of a turning point in popular music. And it's, you know, it's not a historical book in the sense that it's determined to divide history into uh, periods or chunks. But 1983 is important. Uh, at least in the opening gesture of the book, could could you perhaps relate some of those changes that you identify as having happened in the uh, eighties that you feel or or your experience has led you to believe that there's been a lasting impact on pop music?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess some of your listeners might be struck by the the cliches of the early 1980s, which, which include, you know, big shoulder pads and, and kitsch and some of these really sort of quite insufferable bands with long names. Um, but for me, it was, it was, it's actually quite a rich period, um, it's that you know, my, my my sort of gravitation to that period really came out of um, thinking through two or three years of very intense technological change that really only became clear in retrospect and that's i think just something to do with how we experience history um but when we do unpack that period and i'm i'm really talking about the period between 1981 and 1983 you've got this kind of incredibly rich sort of list generative list of of um of changes technological changes primarily but but others too which include things like you know MTV you know the the rise of MTV where music suddenly becomes this Subject to, you know, visual intensification, the rise of the of the celebrity, the music video itself becomes a kind of unit of consumption and, and performance. Um, we've got the rise of MIDI. You know, f- for listeners who, who have not heard of this, this is musical instrument digital interface, which is an incredibly influential protocol in how modern music's made. Um, and if you go into any recording studio, MIDI will be holding the whole thing together. It's a kind of language that, that allows instruments to speak to one another, you know, one instrument to generate um, the sounds of another, it allows a computer to, to, to come on board in a sort of daisy chain um, sort of sequence. And it makes possible um, sequenced dance music, for instance, and popular music. So in terms of the, the changes to, to how music sounds out, it's, it's an incredibly important um, development. Um CDs, you know, the CD player and CDs come out around this point. It becomes part of the, the sort of market strategy of electronics companies. And of course, CDs, as we all know, in a way, saved the music industry, um, which was which was dwindling at that point, as did certain kinds of very influential albums and, and, and pieces of music, including Michael Jackson's Thriller, which, which came out around this time. Um, it stays at number one in the US Billboard charts for 78 weeks um and again for, for many people saves the music industry because it it helps boost um consumption again and, and interest in music um and I, and I also mentioned mentioned in the book new orders blue monday which is i believe still still the highest selling 12 inch single of all time um which is a piece of you know electronic music a very influential piece of electronic music um which which came around out of this time. Um, Domestic computers you know the commodore sixty four this is nineteen eighty two you know is, is is in the market at this point, and then finally and this this is maybe a bit of a bit more of a stretch, but ARPANET, which for many people is the sort of origins of the internet, gets changed over or supplemented by this tcp IP network protocol so as we're speaking now, I mean, you know both of us are using computers which will have tcp ip addresses. So, you know, at a stretch, one might argue that the, the kind of basic architecture of the internet is, is formulated around this time, and we all know how important the internet is in transforming um, what popular music is, how we consume it, how it's distributed, marketed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, this cluster of you know uh, these these cluster of changes and, and devices and processes, I think, signify a, you know if not a watershed moment, a, a particularly potent moment um the implications of which we're still feeling today
1: yeah and i think that you know those particular things that you have identified especially the rise of network computing and the network society they come up as themes throughout the book um it's it's inescapable the changes that um internet has has made on, on the way that music is distributed but also as we'll see later on how it's produced and in in the locations in which it's produced um So we've given a bit of a list there of some important technologies, but I think it's important to to note in the book, and I imagine the rest of your work as well, you don't characterize these technological developments as simply one-way determinants of cultural change. So you are trying to explain cultural change, but at the same time, we're uh, circumspect or or very careful about the agency that we attribute to the technologies. Um, The technologies they shape, interact with, respond or reform listeners, producers, markets, and so on. And I I think it's difficult to claim that researchers, you know, if you're saying or making this claim that you've identified a single technological driver for development in the music industry, um, there's uh, some eyebrows to be raised, I suppose. Um, uh, In your experience of thinking about these questions and and culture in particular, um, what tactics have you used to try and make sense of this tangle of influences and and causal chains? Mm.
0: Well, I suppose it's precisely to see it as a tangle. and and not to assume that technology in abstraction determines things. And, you know, this is rehearsing an argument that's held by many, that that technological determinism is not a satisfactory way of thinking about the complex ways in which culture and technology interact, um, because that seems to imply a one-way relationship, as as you've just described it, Eamon. Um, We really need to think about technologies as always already part of the picture it it can't be separable it can't exist as a kind of entity that's floating above the social or floating above culture and and shaping it from out with it's 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 always already in there and the technologies are, are are embedded in what we do um so you know one therefore then has to kind of reach for the precise terminologies that make best sense of those entanglements um but that's not to dismiss technologies as not having influence. It's just to say that they're embedded. It's not to say that they're that, that, that they uh, are insignificant, inconsequential. Far from it. It's just that they 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 co-evolve, they co-exist. Um, they, they don't they don't exercise an influence from from some kind of abstract position outside. So, which is why I'm drawn to to terms and ways of thinking. You know, when one reaches into the toolbox. That come from, you know, recent thinking in actor network theory, uh, science and technology studies in general, um, and I suppose developments in in, uh, material culture and and reflections and theories of material culture to to think about ways in which uh, the social, the cultural, the technology are are entangled uh, in in imbrolios or in these kinds of clusters of formations.
1: Yeah, or maybe even assemblages, right? uh, That's one of those terms that gets singled out, not for exclusive attention, but for attention in in the first chapter. Um, And in fact, it's something that I've, in my reading at least of the second chapter, um, we see the implications of thinking uh, through a concept like uh, assemblage. So in the second chapter, um, we see the working out of this concept of assemblage, um, something that seems to befit the scale and heterogeneity of an object of studies such as the internet, which is the kind of the main topic of chapter two, um, one of one of the launching off points for this chapter is a description of a of an album released by Boards of Canada, an electronic music group, which was accompanied by an intricate promotional campaign that involved coordination in offline and online spaces by both marketers and fans. Um, the campaign bound a distinctive audience together with the help of the internet and gave especially dedicated fans even opportunities to perform their taste um, by participating in the campaign in different ways. And you tell that story uh, fairly compellingly. And I just wonder if you could just quickly retell the story of that unusual album release and what that tells us about what makes up that part-digital assemblage of of technologies and people through which the work of music consumption is performed today.
0: Mm, Yeah. I mean, it's quite an, an, an intricate story. And part of the problem is trying to reconstruct the story because... Um, you know, one of the themes of the book, I suppose, is is the is the methodological difficulties to get at stuff to to trace and track the movements of information data in a in a hyper um, hyper connected world. But were I to reconstruct the story again it would be something like this that Boards of Canada, who are um, a fairly sort of reclusive band who apparently live just outside of Edinburgh. Um, two brothers they hadn't released an album for a while um, and in 2013 these sort of slightly cryptic strange messages started to appear across the world on on independent record store day on the sleeves of previously unreleased boards of canada um, record so these were strings of numbers and people were kind of working out what, what, what this meant all, the, all of this was sort of supposition and, and, and hypothesis at the beginning but, uh, but obviously something was afoot um, that led to a, a kind of series of quite intricate uh, and, and sort of semi-secret um, ciphers or, or codes that could be Uh, discovered where you to find the right kinds of materials and spaces and places to to look for them. So um, fans, you know, we know fans can be very dedicated, obsessed or or incredibly skillful. Um, They were able to crack these codes. So, for instance, um, if you looked at the WAV files of the band's SoundCloud page, um, looked at the ID codes of the WAV files, you found extra clues so all this built up, you know, um, hearsay and 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 supposition and and a lot of um, discussion about what was, what was going on. Uh, eventually, you know, th- this worked out that were you to put all the codes together and 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 put them in the right order and find the right place to input in this password. It just told you that they were going to release a new album. It just told you the date and the, re- the release date of this new album. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was really only the beginning. Um, after that, a series of other codes and, and what like Google map locations um, were, were, were disseminated in, in sort of these sort of semi secret forums and spaces. Um, and they themselves seem to indicate that they were, they were sort of locations for secret listening parties um, for, for, for the early release of the album. And then the fans who figured out where the locations were turned up. And lo and behold, you know, for instance, at a, at a busy Tokyo um, interchange, on a billboard, some snippets of the of the album were were broadcast. So it just struck me that when you when you ask the question, "What's happening here?" I mean, and, and if you're driven by ontologies, you know, driven by the questions of you know what's you know what exactly is going on here, to even to, to, to put everything on the table is a is a activity of absolute complexity. Because it involves figuring out who the fans are, their backgrounds, their skills, their attachments. It, it, it requires you to to figure out all the complex, material, non-material processes and practices and attachments that had to happen for, for the, you know for, for for these for these codes to be disseminated, for the for the <clears throat> for the unpacking of the codes, for the for the people to be turning up in their droves. Uh, google maps live streaming platforms wikis billboards oil generators undersea cables trucks pas the album itself the record label schedules the personnel the servers the code it's just this kind of incredibly intricate multi scalar local global material non-material event um and, and it gets at the the complexity of it i think in terms of the emergent processes of, of of assemblages so you know, it could have been any one of, one of a number of examples I could have chosen it's just that I happen to be a Boris of Canada fan and, and figured that it would be a good opening uh, or a good vignette and um, to, to to explore the the analytical power of the concept of the assemblage
1: Right, and and as you mentioned, there's a whole amount of tacit knowledge there that's expected or that's deployed by these fans. You know, you set out to to create a campaign like this. You make many assumptions about what the abilities and the skills are of the people who who can or can't participate in it. Um, and and I wonder, kind of related to that, um, on the network, the network effect of of a globally connected society. Um, I'm very interested in whether this and this is something that comes out towards the end of this chapter. Whether it's possible to Maybe draw again on Bourdieu, which you mentioned before is an influence throughout your work, um, and think about a classical understanding of Bourdieu's concept of taste on this new consumption context. Um, so the industry enlists increasing levels of interactive participation, for example, these viral campaigns, uh, across whole new demographics. And the apparently infinite choice of the networked um, offering of of sound and, and streaming that we can tap into now seems to provide the conditions for a kind of omnivorous listening uh, in which listening choices or the choice to participate in a campaign like that are no longer easily reducible to statements of affiliation with uh, a single social grouping or a subculture. Uh, so I'm interested in your thoughts on this question in particular like has this much vaunted a potential of the web to broaden musical tastes to the point of you know omnivorousness been realized? And if not, are we getting any closer to or further away from a kind of idyll of unstratified or classless cultural consumption?
0: Yeah, no, that's a really tricky question, but, but it's a, but it's a very interesting one, and I think it, it it taps into lots of debates that are happening and and studies, empirical studies that are that are being generated, and uh, you know the results range is coming through now. I you know my my relationship to Bourdieu, which is in the background of this question, is is an, intro, is, you know, it's an ambiguous one. So I, I begin absolutely sort of obsessed with him and reading everything he's ever written, you know, written and in a way feeling like he is the main guy, you know, he, there's, he's got the most comprehensive um, and, and persuasive set of tools. And um, to understand the relationship between culture and society and in particular the relationship between power, um, taste and consumption. But nowadays, I think Bourdieu is probably somewhere one starts, but not necessarily where one ends. Um, not least because he has next to nothing to say about technology, and so he doesn't have a sense of how social change might or cultural change might come from um, anywhere but the restricted subfield, which for him is you know the sort of great heroic modernists like Manet, uh, Baudelaire, people like that. Um, so technology and popular culture for Bourdieu are often the sort of poor relations. Um, so I, my sense is that one needs to, to use Bourdieu, update him to, to refine some of his categories somehow, sometimes in some cases jettison those categories if they're not doing the right kind of work, um. In terms of the the, the, the the question itself, I don't think one needs to fall into the trap of assuming that, that digital technologies have obliterated all social distinctions to recognise that they still nevertheless have a huge impact on, on musical engagements and attachments. So I'm, I'm sort of in between those two in terms of, of, of how I'm persuaded by those arguments about either cultural omnivores or things haven't changed much at all. Um, I think one way of... Leveraging Bourdieu into the contemporary picture is to think about more micro distinctions that operate uh, um, in terms of, you know, performing tastes. Um, so, you know, within genres, we can see these these sort of intricate mechanisms of um, of cultural capital working and the way that people talk about their music tastes can often draw on, for instance... Um, the the cultural capital that's accreted through evoking literature or art history. Um, I think there are other more refined forms of distinction at play um, that, that, that necessarily suggest that we're in a kind of flat, formless universe of taste. So, you know, for instance, you know, people might gravitate to or have an affinity towards hip hop or jazz or blues in the elite category precisely because they feel a kind of lack of their own authenticity. So it's another performance of their well-roundedness, you know, that they're, they're able to appreciate both, you know, Beethoven and Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that struggle for elite legitimacy I think is still there. Social distinctions, um, around taste are still there. I think they're harder to detect than they were. And that's partly because of the contingent lumpiness of taste formation, which is itself mediated by and inflected by the processes that you mentioned, and You know, the sort of very engorged digital universe of genres, and the fact that, you know, how does one track tastes when they're just leaking out everywhere as data? And, you know, with, with Spotify on the scene and a key player in how tastes are now formed or how people's music habits are, are, are inflected how does one measure that does it is it just a playlist is it is it is it the data that that's generated by people's clicks and likes and um how does how is that then inflected by the you know the the sidebar which is your friend's activity and is and are you performing your tastes to them and and how about if you have children and you're listening to music that that appeals to them how is that part of this kind of the multiple socialisation process that goes on in anybody's life. So, I think it's we need you know good quality empirical material in this area. Um, I'm not doing it myself, but I know lots of other people are that, that that get at I think the complexity of how digital is changing some things and leaving other things intact. You know, in terms of um, you know the the, 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 the hierarchies around um high and low or underground, indie, mainstream, throwaway, trivial, all those all those categories which I think swill around this this idea of uh, of taste and value. Um and I think you know we, we do need to 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 think about Bourdieu as a as a critical friend, somebody who does need to be, you know, sort of warped and and, um, and updated and, and if that means moving beyond some of those categories then then I think that we, we should be um you know, we should, we, should, we should accept that.
1: Yeah, yeah, great. I'm, I'm really grateful for that that kind of concise explanation of it because I, I feel like it's something to bear in mind, something that we've talked about at the top, but something that, that will kind of come back again, the extent to which, you know, these technologies that appear radical um, to have had this transformative effect can sometimes still sustain uh, distinctions. Um, sure. I mean, when people say, that, you,
0: you talk to lots of people and some of them, It happens quite regularly with me. I don't know if it happens with you. You say what kind of things are you into, and they say, "Well, I listen to everything." Uh, But it's it's... very rarely the case that they listen to everything. When you drill down into the detail, and you you know you you sort of really ask them what they listen to, or you or you spend some time with them, their tastes are fairly broad of narrow. Um, So that that tells you that there's something happening quite 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 interesting in terms of the relationship between reporting one's tastes and the actual kind of real world. Um, messiness right, and how
1: that caches out and I think that sometimes it's the platforms themselves that are reflecting this perception back on them you know mm. I know that I'm an omnivorous listener because my for example my suggested algorithmically curated playlist has this apparent diversity and that's reflected back to me but really that's just the tip of this huge catalog of, of culture production and mm. um, definitely and I think as you pointed out you know, it's hard to unpick some of those um, cross currents, especially in a kind of shared listening environment. If it's mm-hmm. the family or if it's the, the the kind of immediate social circle and so on, yeah, given that yeah. it's so mediated by technology.
0: And it's another thing that Bourdieu is not very good at getting at, or Bourdieuans are not necessarily very good at getting at, which is the sort of more the more messy life world, sensuous, phenomenological part of these questions, which is, you know, the, 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 touch elements, the emotional elements, the attachment elements, and, you know, were you to do a sort of update of, of distinction, then you'd need to incorporate, I think, much more of the kind of qualitative elements of, of listening to music and much more around, you know, how people's emotions are being, um, evoked here. Um, you know, because in distinction, Borgia is, you know, very well known in his ways, you know, in a way it's his magnum opus. You know, if you listen to Petula Clark, you, you, you then become lumped into a category of people who listen to Petula Clark. <laughs> and that, but that tells you nothing about why you like her, in what conditions you listen to her, whether you stop listening to her the following week, you know, all these other kinds of contingencies, which I think, uh, you know, a good empirical sociology of music should be getting at.
1: Right, and in I fact, that it foreshadows a little bit of the discussion about mobile music. I think in the fourth chapter, but I, I think we'll keep moving on um, and move on maybe to the, the third chapter, which deals with um, digital music production. So, having moved a little bit from consumption in the second chapter, uh, we're moving now to, to focus production. Insofar as there's a, a crisp distinction between those two things, um, so in, ch- in chapter three, you discuss some of the tools that are available to music producers since the advent of affordable personal computers and um, digital audio technology more generally. The proliferation of relatively inexpensive um, gear has empowered users who can afford them with the means to create effects that would have got closer to tens of thousands in kit and in labor uh, in the 1980s or before indeed. Uh, so in chapter three, you evoke this kind of striking image of a music producer who's making thousands and thousands of edits to this three minute song with the help of their laptop, but all from the relative comfort uh, of an airplane or, or of a speeding train. Could you find in some of the kind of finer details in this vignette as you do in the chapter, maybe not dissimilar to the Boards of Canada example by following the chain of actions that our kind of model or prototype producer makes in relation to the various uh, social and physical infrastructures in which uh, they're situated. Hmm.
0: It, I mean, that, that image is not one that's, that's I've plucked out of the air. It's one that, that I, I, that I witness fairly regularly, at least um, before, before the lockdown uh, when people were traveling. Um, and that's the image of uh, an amateur musician or could be a professional musician making music in transit, on the move, um, in mobile spaces. Um, that might be in a train or that might be in a plane. In my case, I'm more, I'm more likely to witness it on a train. In, in those contexts, it just strikes me that this, you know, back to the assemblage concept, that when one starts to unpack what's going on here, it, it, that itself is an act of some complexity. So if you if you can imagine uh, a musician with their laptop, with their, their DAW their digital audio workstation in front of them, they're making these kind of speedy MIDI edits to something. You know, maybe it's a bass line or as a vocal line or something. So they're using their fingers across the track pads. They may be using a little MIDI controller or something. The laptop itself is sat on their lap or on the table. It's got a kind of presence. The code of the DAW itself is active there in terms of how the composition's unfolding, uh, the way in which the the MIDI data is being shuffled around through the cut and paste actions and so on. It could be that the musicians calling down samples from the cloud, you know, perhaps, or from, from their own personal archive, maybe a Dropbox account or something, through Wi-Fi, if the if the if the train has Wi-Fi enabled, as the train itself is speeding through the country or or the region or whatever. So, I suppose for me it's the question of so where is the music there? Is it is it in the transport networks? Is it in satellite systems? Is it in the the, the haptic interchange of energies between the between the musician's fingers and the trackpad? Is it in the MIDI data? Again, just just to you know unpack the the ontology of, of music making. There is is itself quite an interesting and, and I think fruitful exercise, but which which but which also demands these kinds of quite extra complex analyses and, and methodological tools, which which, which uh, are able to get at the multi scale. Because it's you know the local implies the lo- the global here, and that's one good thing about the assemblage concept that it doesn't. Um, discriminate on the basis of scale doesn't drive a wedge between the local and the global and when you know when a musician is you know using wi-fi in that way and, and making music I think it, it 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 does call forth the assemblage concept as a as a, as a way of making sense of the emergent multi-scaler material non-material elements of play there
1: and uh, beyond the relationality of that kind of really thick picture there are some kind of you know, qualitative things to look at at the individual nodes, if you like, in the network. I I was particularly interested in something that you noticed about the kind of changing physical appearances of the various different tools that are used. So you mentioned the DAW, the digital audio workstation, you know, which to some degree simulates or emulates the the studio environment, which it kind of seeks to replace or make um, you know, redundant in some respects, uh, or you've got these um, VSTs. So you talk a little bit about the the rise or the development of virtual instruments, the idea that there is a plug-in ecosystem of smaller elements of software that can be used to um, create the sound of either an imagined or a real or a synthetic instrument. Um, and the way that those were presented to the user can kind of be interesting. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Or just thinking about, you know, the actual, what, we're looking over the shoulder of this fictitious music producer, let's say, like what kinds of things do we see? I mean, one thing I think we need to take
0: seriously, and I'm not sure how seriously we take it in, in, at least in sociology is to think about digital objects as objects. So, you know, a workspace, um, a folder, a desk space, um, they are all of course they're metaphors they're visual metaphors but they're also constructions they're 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 forms of architecture they're pieces of art in some respects with you know with the elements of design and so on and i think daws are a bit like that one needs to pay attention to the to their constructedness as as aesthetic objects and as and as pieces of architecture That. Afford, you know, that's one of the terms I use and it's been used a lot in, in science and technology studies. Afford certain kinds of um, practices, you know, in terms of shuffling space, shuffling data around, using a cursor and scroll bar and cut and paste and so on. And I think that does lend itself to certain kinds of ways of making music. Um, and in terms of VSTs, I think that's an interesting point to be made there about history of BSTs. I mean, it's quite a short history. We're going back really only to the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And yet they've come so far um, in, in terms of, you know, the impact on the industry. I mean, they're really, they're, they're an incredibly potent industrial unit, um, partly because they can be downloaded infinitely without any, without any changes to the object uh, and be, can be copied and, and hacked and, and, uh, and so on. But also just in terms of you know the the kinds of design and aesthetic principles at work. And one's seeing, I think recently a shift away from VSTs as sort of emulating their, their analogue referent, you know, sort of copying the, the hardware version to something a bit more like where they become their own sort of co- cognitive spaces, their own spaces of, of, of play and practice on on which to on which to surf and skim and and, and so on compose. And I use the example of Ableton Live, for instance, which is a very popular DAW amongst electronic musicians, where it doesn't refer back to an analog referent. It, it, it is itself now a kind of flat digital space, um, which affords certain kinds of interventions in, um, and certain kinds of compositional practices in terms of scenes and clips and so on.
1: And so you mean I th- that quite literally. I mean, it's important to stress that. You mean it's literally got a kind of flat, uniform design. I think the kind of stereotype or or the character of the opposition is the sort of wood grained user interface like corresponding to the Rhodes piano or something like that. I'm just jumping in to make sure because it's a literal flatness, right? It's
0: it's a literal flatness. And, you know, as you as you were speaking there, I was just thinking about, you know, in the history of art, there's a sort of similar um, set of movements, artistic movements to flatness. You know, and 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 hyperrealism, and the idea that one should explore the flat surface of the medium, and not evoke the grand masters, and assume that people can walk through the painting in a three dimensional way. It's not three dimensional simulation. So there's a there are aesthetic principles at work in how these things are designed, um, which I think you know need to be unlocked and, and um, given given due attention before they become you know sort of forgotten about because version updates and so on we know the, the world of software accelerates incredibly quickly um so we need to capture these things as they're happening i think and, and, and pay attention to them
1: yeah indeed uh with this, the pace of change is, is sort of very difficult to keep up with uh, somebody who's studying this kind of um these kinds of objects uh as you know as objectified as they are in their use it is really the material traces that they leave behind are Um, difficult to wrangle to say the least in the archive. Um, I wonder now moving on then um, to return to that thing that we just flagged uh, a little bit earlier, um, chapter four and the discussion of mobile listening devices. Um, So this is maybe more uh, consciously bringing the question of detachment and um, sort of embeddedness in in the real world um, to the fore. Uh, If for example the the laptop producer is in some way fully disconnected or virtualized by, by interacting with the DOM. In any case, in in the fourth chapter, you're directly engaging uh, with a strand of recent writing in music sociology about the rise of what's called portable music, a kind of catch-all term for the proliferation of devices and formats that we can use to bring sound with us on the move, ranging from the Walkman, uh, brought academic attention by uh, Haskawa's article, which some people might be familiar with, through to devices like the iPod and on indeed to smartphones, streaming music and multimedia and so on. We're all probably quite familiar with this figure of the tech immersed zombie in public space, detached, sequestered and alienated from their environment by the demands on their sensory attention the various devices place on them. Michael Bull in particular has written extensively about these devices and how they change our relationship between the listener and the living space and their workspace and so on. And he's used the word uh, the, the phrase privatized auditory bubble to characterize precisely this condition of detachment that the use of these devices can bring about. Um, so in this chapter, I wonder if you could share with us what you learned about your own study into practices of portable media by students at Edinburgh University and how the results perhaps complicate or complement the idea that to listen to sounds on the move in this way is like merely to erect a barrier against the outside world. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, so this was a piece of empirical research that I carried out a number of years ago. Um, it, it was a three-year research project, um, and it was based on basically a hunch, which was which was really just to, to, to that the people's consumption habits, when it came to mobile listening, were were a bit more complex than had been communicated or or. Claimed in the literatures that that there was something more interesting going wrong, going on when when one scratches the surface of, of of mobile listening, and you know again in the background here is as you mentioned Michael Bull's work, who you know he's got a very you know rich and complex argument about this this notion of, uh, of control and lack of control, um, and you know he he's, he's got a very sophisticated argument that I, that I that I like a lot. It just struck me that 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 in terms of what I was seeing and um in terms of the kinds of testimony from my students that 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 was partial that that was that was mainly part of that that was part of the picture of their behaviors but um there was a lot more going on it wasn't just about sequestered privatized detachment from from the city or from other people um the 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 students were reporting, and I, and I got them to, to re- record their experiences in blogs, by the way, and, you know, um, sort of re- reflecting on their uh, device relations and their relationship to the city of Edinburgh as, as they walked around the city, that they were reporting, you know, sort of plural uses for the device. You know, for instance, a lot of the, f- the women students were saying that they put their earbuds in, but they didn't play any music because they were wanting to ward off unwanted male attention um A number of students were saying that they used their iPods to deal with their mental illnesses. Many students were reporting that they docked their iPods in speaker systems in their flats and used you know having parties using the iPod. Um, some were using them to learn a language, uh, sharing tastes with others. So it just struck me that there was you know there was more of the social in these elements of of mobile listening than, than they were present in the in the literature. So um, that chapter is to try and take stock of that empirical material uh, and kind of work it through um, in terms of um, you know some of the recent thinking in science and technology studies around users. Um, ultimately, this is this idea that you know, we can't reduce things to this notion of the distracted, atomized, zombie, cut off from the city, and others. That that one needs a much more finessed version. Of device use here, um, and that's really just how, the, how that chapter is uh, structured.
1: And indeed, non-use, right? That as a kind of rescuing that as a positive category—the voluntary decision to not use it in a particular context, right? That's,
0: that surprised me a lot. You know, lots, lots yeah, a lot of lots of students said they they strategically left their devices at home because they realised that they were intervening too much in their pleasures of the city. Yeah, you know, so they, they they purposely forgot them. In order to enliven their relationship to the city, allow it to breathe, um, and that, that that struck me as quite interesting because it wasn't the device doing the the shaping; it was it was their decision making being
1: paramount there. Yeah, and I really liked the the way that that was expressed in terms of allowing the city to breathe because it you know it suggests that if we're to fill out this picture more fully, like as let's say if we're a scholar of mobile music or of portable music. Um, we have to think about the spaces outside of that bubble and, and thinking about urban studies more generally. And I think that's a, a really great compulsion there to remember that the uh, the environments in which these things have their own, not only academic histories, but their sort of um, material histories and <laughs> affordances as spaces, right? Sure. Which is not something I would say, I, I would say that if you're thinking quite a lot about sound, it's not the the, the first place that you'll go, given that sound has this, um purport to um non materiality. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, and so, I think we have to be careful yeah. with
0: metaphors because it's the bubble of the, the the metaphor of the bubble that seems to be doing a lot of the work for for, for people in, in this area. Um, and that idea of the bubble as this kind of self-contained environment just doesn't seem to me to be sort of analytically or empirically defensible. Um, because it assumes a kind of cage, almost like a, a sequestered space uh and and we know that that's not the case you know and and just the final example that really struck me and you can see this amongst lots of young people they share earbuds one has the left earbud in the other has the right earbud in and they're talking about the music and that to me encapsulates the problem with thinking about you know the privatized auditory bubble
1: oh quite yeah no thanks i mean that's a, a wonderful kind of image to to round up chapter four on um so uh, we're, we're coming towards the end of the book. There are, there are uh, two main chapters left to go. Um, the fifth chapter is um, called Vox Pop. Uh, and in chapter five, you would turn your attention to how the voice is mediated in recent pop music uh, by a whole suite of new technologies. So uh, drawing on Derrida and Barth in The Grain of the Voice, you state very clearly, um, uh, admirably, actually, what's, what's at stake when it comes to these technologies that transform the human voice which today is still demarcated as a kind of protected category, almost, of music expression, Um, since the voice seems to afford a kind of direct or privileged access into the interior life of the singer or of the speaker, indeed. The voice is something for which, as you point out, in certain contexts of music making, at least, audience will accept no substitute. Ultimately, however, almost every time we hear a performing voice today, and indeed right now, I suppose, it's electronically mediated in some way. Most of our listeners will have heard the sounds that many of the technologies that you discuss in this chapter make and remake, auto-tune, vocoder, and so on, even if they don't know that what they're hearing is electronically manipulated or exactly what piece of kit is doing that work. Um, The voice is sometimes close-miked in recordings to seem authentic, and I have that here in scare quotes, uh, and immediate. Other times, it's seemingly fully simulated, as in the case of the vocaloid performances that you discuss in this chapter, but it's always mediated, or almost always could you talk a little bit about some of these technologies of vocal processing that you describe in Chapter 5 and how they cast light on the different kinds of vocal subjects that are available to musicians in contemporary opera music?
0: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. I, I was just thinking this morning, actually, um, I don't know if you watch uh, watching TV at the moment or, or um, you know, you've got your favourite broadcasters or DJs or whatever, but in the lockdown, because a lot of broadcasters are doing so from their bedrooms and, and using whatever equipment they've got available it's changing how their voice sounds uh, right it sounds sort of a little bit echoey and you and it's a little bit surprising you're sort of thinking well, that doesn't sound right but of course it doesn't sound right because you got used to hearing their voices ultra compressed ultra processed in incredibly well soundproof recording studios and so on uh, you know the archetypal bbc radio voice is a, is a, is a, is an absolute socio-technical construction and it's only when we break the frame you we know, only when that's then, then those assumptions get sort of upturned that we realize what we were listening to in the beginning so that's just one sort of slightly banal but contemporary example of how we hear voices epistemically almost you know so that the, the kinds of technologies that are available shape very active listening and what we hear and 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 the actual sonic process and the actual sonic artifacts and that's also the case with with popular music of course and you know i don't dwell too much on this but if if that chapter had been longer i would have i would have done a much sort of more detailed job on the microphone because i think there's just it's just one of the most important under under um sort of Less, you know, not much attention is being paid to the microphone compared to some of these other technologies. But when you think about the role of the microphone as shaping, you know, popular music, shaping the voice, shaping how list, shaping how listeners listen to those voices, you realise how significant it is. Um, the chapter, you know, it does talk about the microphone a little bit, but it, but it, it, it explores the voice as this sort of almost like a double-coded entity. On the one hand, yes, we still think it's the privileged site of communication and meaning It's where we think the singer's personality resides. It's you know they, they express their lives and their loves and losses, and you know the voice becomes this kind of locus of uh, of meaning. On the other hand, popular music itself is a sort of big breaching experiment in what the voice is, where it sounds out, and 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 so on. Um, and so that chapter is sort of explores some of the the key devices that have breached our expectations about about voices and that includes the vocoder the sampler autotune and and vocaloids these these um, vsts in effect. so it's to think about voices as as not existing in this kind of trans historical space but to see them as utterly mediated and it, and it is pitched against great, uh, bart's grain of the voice because i think that essay you know interesting as it is and fruitful it assumes that the grain uh, exists sounds out on its own, um, when in fact, you know, contemporary mediations of the voice have shown that the you know we may as well just as well, you know, we may just as well be drawn to the to the grain of the circuit or you know the, the algorithm or something because that's how voices um, coexist with their non-human others these days, whether it be through you know telephone voice messaging systems, VoIP, which is how we're communicating now. Um, all the way, you know, all the way through to the overt manipulations of, of voices with, with with applications like autotune and so on. So it's exploring the, the sort of ambiguous spaces in which voices sound out, and and the ambiguous relationships we have with them, because we still feel like the voice is the locus of meaning. Right? We still feel that's where we go for truth, and yeah, and Derrida is very important there in, in his uh, his comments on logocentrism. But we've also got used to hearing that voice utterly. Fragmented, deconstructed, made to sound like a robot. So it's 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 exploring that tension between between you know the, the search for meaning and yet it's 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 absolute deconstruction in increasingly in in the in the spaces and circuits of uh, of technologies.
1: Right, and I think in one of the places where the stakes are highest is in the discussion of the vocoder, where you talk a little bit about um, the use of the vocoder uh, by black artists who are you know there's an Afrofuturist program there that really dwells or, or takes advantage of this kind of double logic of the, the voice. Um, so uh, I wonder if you could speak maybe a little bit more about that, uh, maybe in contrast with your own experience with the vocoder or perhaps <laughs> uh, resonating with that in some way.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly because, because we're in the territories here of post-humanism, aren't we? And, and many artists are using these vocal manipulation tools in that kind of way to, to, to to suture the body into the non-human realm, you know, to, to almost remake the body as a, as a hybrid entity. Um, so it's trying to, you know, that, that's in a post-human moment. But of course, for, for African-Americans, humanism means some, something completely different because of, you know, histories of slavery, processes of dehumanization and so on. So in the hands of, of, of African-American musicians, we've got to think about, you know, how race, ethnicity, and technology play out in the in these articulations, uh, literally these articulations between between bodies and their and their histories. Um, so that's just one example. Beatboxing is another and I, I finished a chapter towards the end of the chapter I think about beatboxing because it's also intimately entwined into the histories of the making of the voice. If you think about a beatboxer, they they often simulate the sounds of drum machines that were originally designed to replicate the sounds of their analog referent. So you've got a folding of histories there. Um, you know, in, in each enunciation of a beatboxer's snare or whatever, you've got these intricate epistemic, uh, processes going on. You know, so, so when they sound out the sound of an 808 or a 909 or whatever, um, they're they're literally embodying these 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 processes whereby the technologies become part of, embedded in our in our in our sonic worlds and therefore in our bodies and yeah and, and to track back to, um, to to black musicians using these technologies I think they they become they can become quite effective powerful ways of enunciating the, these complex histories of power dispossession uh, and repossession in, in a world where you know, the organic and the inorganic becoming incredibly difficult to to separate
1: yeah i, I mean, it's a wonderful example to to end the chapter with precisely because it has that kind of uh, d- double <laughs> that double simulation that nested or, or or second order um reflection or or simulation of what's going on um so, so we're winding towards the end I, I, as we kind of come to the close of the um the book we look to another growing um growing not only in um economic terms, but also in academic interest, um, object of study, which is um, the computer game and the relationship between music and gaming in in Chapter 6. Not only are they a growing object of uh, legitimate inquiry, they are just a huge sector of the culture industries right now. Uh, The fact that certain releases command budgets and audiences equivalent to those of the most indulgent Hollywood blockbusters uh, means that we can't afford to ignore them. And like film, the basic conjunction of sound and vision that uh, video games provide means that there is obviously rich pickings to be had there for a sociologist of music. Uh, In the sixth chapter of the book, you neatly dissect the music gaming complex into three course categories that I found especially useful for thinking about uh, music and video games. So there are kind of uh, music with games, music from games, and finally, music as games. Um, And I think that last category is possibly one of the least intuitive ones, but if you've been following music, uh, video games closely, you will know precisely what direction this is going in, um, and it covers rhythm action games like Dance Dance Revolution, Guitar Hero, and so on, and has perhaps the greatest potential to revise what we understand by uh, categories like music and play in the first instance, uh, especially for uh, students or, or scholars of music, in particular, or musicing. Could you take us through one or two examples, um, maybe of each of these kinds of experiences, maybe with a focus on on music? as games um, and what they yielded up to you as you reflected on them as a sociologist of music?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's still a bit of a kind of residual disquiet around the whole territory of gaming, Uh, you know, even though it's a sort of, it's a cultural form which has been redeemed somewhat recently, um, particularly with the rise of indie games and and games which are purportedly, you know, sort of more towards high culture than low culture, you know, because they're beautiful or the, the, the games designer themselves are, almost like auteurs. Um, I think there's still a kind of distrust of the game form as, as juvenile. And, you know, we've got the stereotype of you know, kids in bedrooms and spotty teenagers and, or worse, you know, sort of criminality and so on. So that chapter was, was, was taking music, uh, taking games seriously because it just felt like, um, yeah, as you say, they were making a massive industry impact, industrial impact in terms of the uh, franchises and, and sync rights and so on. Um the, you know, the AAA, the big budget games, were really you know, out, uh, out shooting video and music as, as cultural forms in terms of their industrial impact, financial impact. Um, uh, one of the things that really changed my mind about, you know, or, or at least confirmed my, my sense of, of the impact that games were having in this area, was, was the Beatles rock band game. Know you, you know this one. So um, it was the first time really that the Beatles were releasing content digitally. Up to, up to that point, you couldn't buy any, you couldn't download or stream um, uh, Beatles tracks. So that they they agreed for their part of their back catalogue to be uh, made available for this game. So that itself tells you quite an interesting story. Um, the Rock Band game is itself a rhythm action game, and, and some of your listeners will know what this what, what, what rhythm action games are, like Guitar Hero. So you you know you strummer plastic controller and you're supposed to sync up with the with the on-screen action and and so on and you can get extra points sometimes by tilting the guitar and rocking out so some of the performative elements replicate those in in a a sort of real life setting Um, nowadays we have also got this 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 sort of sub area of of gaming which is indie games as i've said which almost sort of replicates the discourses and practices of of indie music it's Mm -hmm. where some of the more credible elements are um, yeah, going back to Bordeaux to a certain extent some of the more sort of highbrow elements of, of gaming can be found um, and I think there's some interesting debates uh, opened up one is a deba- the debate about what music is what playing music is um, you know what is it the case that if you're playing Guitar Hero that you're acquiring musical literacies um, what what does that mean in this context um uh, because, of course, you know, lots of people were saying, "Yeah, you know, if only these kids were playing real guitar as much as they were playing the video games, they would become proficient at playing the guitar. Um, but in some cases, you know, I'm thinking about the game Rocksmith, that the controller itself was basically a guitar. And, you know, you were encouraged to fret and strum just as you would with a normal guitar. So almost like a confluence of, of the of the controller with its with its reference, which was sort of quite interesting to me. Um so this, there's all those debates about, you know, musicality, musical literacies, which, which, which interest me. Um, I suppose the other thing really is in terms of rhythm action games is just where things are going there. I mean, the, the book was written at a certain moment when rhythm action games were were, were, were pretty popular. Now, less so. So the, so the Guitar Hero franchise is probably less powerful than it was, less lucrative than it was. Um, things have moved towards apps. Um, much more now Um, apps themselves you know are little kind of units of commerce and play assumption as i as i define it and where you can you know catch a few minutes at the bus stop waiting you know waiting for your bus playing a little bit of music and 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 interacting with the interface but i think it's also having an impact higher in the industry so you know going back to 2011 with with bjork's biophilia app this this was very much a game type album app, as it were, where to play the app was also to remake the music, you know, so, the, so it it's very much casting the gamer as productive, as somebody who's, who's producing the music as it, as it unfolds. So I think all these debates are quite interesting in, in terms of higher level concepts like, you know, presumption, um digital labor emotional labor immaterial labor uh, and and the debate sparked by the notion of platform capitalism and so on
1: Um, right it's that adjacency of like things that we thought were two separate modes of interacting with the economy now being kind of squished into almost the same interaction and and the amplification of it actually it's hard having you know read through the book and um, come to where we are in the discussion right now not to be sensitized to uh, that scene that you just painted you know it's the ability that these things uh, give us uh, is is a, is one that reconfigures our sense of space because we can do them, as you said at the bus stop. The where of it is 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 changing in a way that um, is is very interesting to take take note of, and I think something that the one of the consequences of reading the book is a sensitivity to those kinds of prepositional <laughs> elements to where, where where I suppose these things are happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it just, so, it
0: just speaks to this notion that, well, when you ask the question where music is, it isn't just in recorded music. And, and a lot of popular music studies falls into that trap, just focusing on the record or the cassette or the, the CD or whatever, the score. It, it leaks out of all these other spaces. And in terms of young people's lives, that's increasingly where people are listening to music, YouTube, gaming, apps, um, TikTok, etc. not radio, you know, not vinyl.
1: Yeah, that neatly segues actually into my last question for you, which in in a way responds to the the afterword of the book, which I don't want to spoil for listeners, but is is an and ethnographic account of your own um, music making in tandem with your students, and I think it's a great it's it's impossible to read that in the same way, having read the book, if that makes sense. Um, uh, you realize that there's uh, so many kind of lights going um, and and bells ringing, so to speak, um, in revisiting. Uh, a scene of music making, having having read the, the chapters which preceded. So it's a really nice, I think, nice moment and, and way to end the book. Um, but you mentioned TikTok there and other platforms. Um, I'm wondering, just as we kind of wrap things up, is there anything about the music that you listen to or make indeed today uh, or the cultural forms that you spot out there in the real world that, that keeps you interested as a, a sociologist of music or of culture more generally that keeps you convinced that there's even more to unpack? I mean, we've alluded to it just a little bit. Uh, but where, where do you look for new, interesting social formations in uh, the contemporary digital music landscape, given that that's where we've dialed ourselves into now?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, firstly, keep, keeping up is tricky, right? Yeah. Uh, just keeping abreast of developments is tricky. And, you know, I, I became a father for the first time quite recently, so my, my leisure time is, is, is squeezed in that respect. I, I tend to be listening to lots of uh, toddler tunes these days.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, a whole... A whole long tale of of uh, music that has yet to be explored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But in terms of innovation,
0: you know, it's difficult to know. I know there's a debate about whether we're now stuck in a kind of endless recycling mode. You know, Simon Reynolds' book on retromania is sort of quite interesting. There that we just keep rehashing now. um, You know, reinventing, reforming, recycling. Um, uh, you know, and there's, of course, there's some, there's some soul searching going on about where where the next big thing might be coming from, and whether if we've been looking for it, and where is the underground there now in terms of music production? You know, <laughs> should white middle class scholars like me know about it? Should it, should it happen? I hope not. I hope it's going on, but but probably I shouldn't know about it. Um, uh, I, I, you know, personally, I find myself listening to to. to to old stuff and trying to listen to it with fresh ears. And that's partly because I think the conditions of digital or digitality have now become almost overwhelming and bewildering that if you look at the the generation of genres and micro genres, just the sheer amount of music that's being generated, um, it can be very difficult to navigate and, and to find yourself there. Um, you know, I was reading the other day that something like 500 hours of footage gets uploaded to YouTube every minute. How does one even begin to make a dent in some of that and and try to listen to that? Um, And of course, one then relies on recommender systems, on, on, you know, on algorithms. Um, And so one's taste, I think, is, is often sort of shaped by those processes now, partly because no one has enough time to, to navigate this this cultural landscape, which is engorged, you know, which is incredibly bewildering. <clears throat> so that's, I mean, that's really just a sort of uh, a caveat to, 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 or or a, or a coda to the, to the discussion, which is, you know, now we're in a space where cultural superabundance is is producing lots of new interesting artifacts. One of which is being, you know, passing over the taste making capabilities to algorithms that uh, you know they become almost like the gatekeepers to one's tastes a little bit now
1: um, and it's a voluntary delegation too right it's not something that indeed. we're being necessarily coerced into uh, certainly not at any in any uh, violent uh, no, no, no material violence anyway yeah, yeah. well on, on that note <laughs> um we've taken up loads of your time nick i really really enjoyed speaking with you about the book i enjoyed reading it and i enjoyed stepping through some of the arguments again um kind of with the benefit of your uh your your guidance um just before i let you go i'd like to um ask you just to let us know what what are you working on now have you got any projects in the pipeline um and if so where we can um keep an eye out for them uh, if we wanted to learn more about your work uh
0: yeah so i'm i'm, I'm just finishing off uh, four pieces actually i, I just finished off a, an afterword for a, a collection on um the concept of musical gentrification which came out of some scholarship um in norway um, Petter peta dindal is the is one of the uh, key investigators in that project um, and that's really it's a sort of taking stock of bourdieu as a as a as a, as a theoretical or bourdieusianism as a theoretical position in a in a digital climate really and reflecting back on some of the discussion we've had uh, in the interview um, a second piece, which was looking at vocaloids uh, and the Hatsune Miku phenomena through the lens of science and technology studies, that, that comes out in a, in a collection um, by some French colleagues uh, in a year, I think. Um, a, another piece on Borgia and the new amateurs, which, which, which comes out um, relatively soon in a, in a collection, um, which came out of a symposium we held a couple of years ago, um, some German colleagues um, situated near Bremen. And then finally, I've been working with a colleague, Paul Harkins, on the concept of democratization and 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 popular music technologies, and exploring genres like acid house, grime, hip hop, as um, illuminating questions about the veracity or the or the or the the power of the concept of democratization and and the fact that it doesn't quite apply to popular music in a a very straightforward way. Um, And then finally, doing. Over the last few days, I've had some time just to do some editing and rendering of some music videos that I've made um, that i just uploaded to my YouTube channel, which is um, partly academic, partly fun, um, combining some sort of uh, material, explaining some theories and some ideas in, uh, in, in STS and, and cultural theory and sociology of culture with some music. Um, so that, that's, that's the last bit in the puzzle.
1: No, great. I can think of actually a better artifact to sum up um, kind of the outlook of the book, but also I think the outlook of what you've contributed over the last uh, 10 years or so, that kind of synthesis of an interest in the sounds, but also um, a deep and sincere engagement of uh, the sociology of what's happening. So um, thanks again, uh, Nick Pryor, for coming on the show today. It really was a pleasure chatting to you. Um, Thanks for your time and the very, very best of luck with all those uh, future projects. I look forward to reading more of your writing and and checking out that YouTube channel. Um, So take care and stay well. Thanks, Eamon. Thanks a lot.